Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Patrick Green. And Christian Matska. Welcome back, Jamie and Christian, from what I can only assume was uh, an incredible weekend in Los Angeles at the Prop Store auction, where you hosted a live panel conversation, and I was not able to go, but I was very jealously watching from afar, and I cannot wait to hear about it. So tell me, how'd it go? I think it went really, really well. Honestly, it was an honor to be there. It was an honor to host an event with Mark Ralston and Rico Ross, two you know major players in Aliens, and it was a very posh event, filled with industry people, filled with a lot of fans, of course, filled with a lot of props from Prop Store on display behind glass. Some of it was out behind like uh, stanchions and things like that, but it was really a, a lovely experience. So not only were you there for this live panel, but you were also there as sort of a prelude to this larger prop store auction taking place, I believe, Tuesday the 21st through Friday the 24th of June. So uh, I bet there were some pretty cool things on display there, huh? They had this place laid out with so many props. And then they had the, this book that was like an old phone book in thickness of the thousands of props they're actually going to be auctioning over those days. And so we had a, a wonderful selection like the the hoverboards from Back to the Future 2, a lot of the prosthetics and, and things from, uh, from Terminator 2, Ghostbusters costumes and Ghostbusters props, just a, a real crazy array, array of things. But the reason we were there, of course, were the aliens props. And so we had, like Jamie said, we had the two actors, but we also were joined by Pat McClung, who was one of the model makers on Aliens. And so you'll also hear him in, um, in this interview. And I think that he offered a really interesting perspective having had a, a, an earlier history with James Cameron before this film. Pat McClung is a little bit uh, of an industry veteran. Can you give our listeners like more of a window into his connection, not only to Alien, but to other franchises that, you know, they might hold near and dear? Oh, man, his, his credentials go way back. For us, of course, there's, there's Blade Runner, there's Ghostbusters, there's 2010. But he continues in the field. He's a, he does CGI work now. And so up through uh, Runaways for, for Disney on Hulu, He's remained remained a very uh, vital part of special effects in the industry. Nice, yeah. Jamie. What uh, what was your favorite moment? If you can give us. Oh that. man, uh, I, my favorite moment is certainly interacting with both Mark Rico and Pat McClung. But certainly, initially, we were there for Mark and for Rico. But just to have some personal time with them and to talk to them and to make a connection and to connect with people who've been in our lives in their own way via their characters um, all of my life. So that was just amazing. And then on top of it all, to be around the props, to be around the smart gun, to be around Pharaoh's helmet. Um, there was just so much there um, that was right there in front of us. And Christian was able to actually hold the smart gun. We have video that we posted earlier of him picking it up. That was great. I kind of wanted to, but I'm, not like I wasn't a big deal for me, but again, just being around that stuff. Also, uh, anecdotally, Rick Deckard's shirt from Blade Runner was there on display, not behind glass for everyone to see. And that was awesome being that close to essentially not really a prop, but a, a costume like that. That is so iconic. And again, we make emotional connection to these things. Um, I'm not as emotionally connected to props, but with Alien, 
there is that emotional connection for me. There's something where you're seeing these things in real life and you're able to sometimes maybe pick them up or just be very close to them and to see something that means so much to you. And, and that's why people buy these props. People just don't buy these props because, oh, it's like crypto or, or whatever. People buy these props because there's an emotional uh, connection made to them. And that was really a powerful energy going on in this event. I'll tell you... Uh I sent a photo to a friend of me holding the smart gun. He said, oh, did you yell, let's rock? And my first reaction was, oh, crap. I missed the one opportunity in my life to hold the gun and yell, yell, let's rock. But I've watched the footage of me picking the thing up. And I have to tell you, that wasn't even where I was. I was just so in the moment of I am holding one of only two smart guns that was ever made. And just it was it was a very, very powerful thing. So I wasn't I wasn't going to cheapen it by yelling a line from the movie. And it was also incredibly heavy and incredibly unwieldy because it's all forward, you know, without the, the, uh, the steady cam to, to bolster the thing up. It was, uh, I think it was, I was 41 pounds and it's all out away from your body. You guys know that had I been there, I would have been the idiot yelling, let's rock with a smart gun when it was my <laughs> turn. <laughs> I do want to say this. So for those of us who have, gotten to know Christian over the past year plus that he's been on the show. Christian can tend to be, of the three of us, the one that seems a little bit more soft-spoken. Um, I tend to be the one that's got the bigger personality on the show, and Patrick and, and I have always had this great chemistry, but now we're a mix of really great texture between the three of us. But in person, Christian Matska is the life of the fucking party. Um, like, so there's this strange dynamic happening where I've spent a lot of time with Patrick and his family at his house in LA twice. Like, so we have that kind of, Patrick kind of knows me, but I'm still getting to know Christian, but we had this role reversal while we were here spending time in person where in crowds and Patrick's never seen this part of me before, but in crowds, I'm pretty shy. I'm pretty quiet. Christian is not. Christian is like, he was over there with Mark and Rico talking to them, asking them questions. He's like, oh, why don't you come over? I'm like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just kind of in the corner because I'm an observer. That's what I like to do. I don't like to, I like to observe. I don't, I'm not, I don't like to interact. Christian was so needed for this event. Like we really played off each other and he, we were both bringing the best parts of who we are to this event. And without him, it wouldn't have been as successful. Of course, if you were there in place of him, it would have been great. But again, because it was just us two, it was really this great role reversal for us where he became more of the dynamic host and I was more of kind of took a step back. So, and this was something that I didn't know. So it was delightful to see this from him. I'm like, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. I'm like, this man's the life of the fucking party. Like I had no idea this kind of quiet talking demure guy is not demure at all. So it was wonderful to host the event with you, my friend. Thank you very much. Um, I, I was also surprised at our dynamic and I agree on the show. You two, the words just flow from your mouths and it's, and it's so much fun. And I'm more, I've got something I'm going to say and, and that's it. And sometimes it's a little divisive, but, <laughs> um, but at the party, uh, I, I would say that Mark Ralston was a little bit, a little bit shy himself at first, and so I I saw a moment when I could go over and talk to him, and I had a couple of photos on my phone ready, 
And sure enough, there was a little uh, costume detail that no one had ever asked him about and that he had actually forgotten about. And he got so excited when he realized there was this story and, and it just, it just flowed out of him. Um, and it's not, it's not in this interview. The, the, the thing I did with Rico is in the interview and you get to hear Rico. Uh, I think he refers to me as a nerd, which I wear as a badge of honor. I, I would like to have that audio, you know, played for the rest of eternity. But I think that making that little connection with Mark loosened him up and got him excited to talk about all this stuff. So um, in, in some small way, what I bring to this dynamic at this event did kind of um, augment what we were doing. So, Well, I think that you've, you've wet the whistles plenty now to hear what this actually sounds like. So let's, uh, let's get to the tape. Sound good? We should say, though, it was a live event and it was recorded on um, the fourth floor of a building outdoors. So there is some, there will be some um, wild audio. Yeah. yeah. Ambiance, yes, let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sounds good. See you on the other side. So welcome to the panel hosted by Prop Store. And my name is Jamie Prater, and I am the founder and co-host of Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. We were pleased to be invited by Prop Store to facilitate this panel discussion with Mark Ralston, Rico Ross, and Pat McClung. Thank you guys for joining us. I was first introduced to aliens when I was 12 years old in Chicago by my father on Channel 32, Fox Channel 32. Um, and uh, it's been a love affair ever since, and it's great to be in your company. And again, we are thankful to be here with everyone else to enjoy this discussion. You, did you say you started? You saw this at 12 years old? 12 years old. That's funny, because I was 12 too. So. <laughs> Gotta do the math, man. Hi, I'm Christian Motzka. I'm also a host on Perfect Organism. And we wanted to start with a question about the personalization of the costumes. As I understand it, James Cameron gave you guys a fair amount of uh, latitude with what you wanted to put on there. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that went? Yeah, it was, um, um, <laughs> we were rehearsing in the morning and then had lunch and after rehearsal, uh, Jim said, okay, everybody pack up your gear and follow me and didn't say anything else. And he just started walking across the Pinewood studio a lot to the art department, which was a sort of nondescript building with the rickety wooden stairs and walk into this room and there's cans of paint and brushes and chicken bones and bits of leather. And uh, Cameron said, have at it. I want you to personalize all of your costume. So we all got into it. Uh, I ended up painting uh, my bitch onto my gun. Uh, don't know why that was, but uh, but yeah, we, we all had a great time and uh, a little bit of a competition between each of us as to what we were going to paint onto our chest plates and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember wishing that I had had a little more heads up because I felt like I had to do it on the fly. And, I, and afterwards, I just thought, oh, I could have put so much more cooler shit if I had more time. But um, no, it was, it was like Mark said, you know, he, he gave us, he, said, he says, you know, do your thing, personalize it. And, and there I was trying to figure out if I were a Marine, what would I do? And I, you know, um, actually, Christian just showed me a, a, a tattoo I had on, I had put on. And I've always wanted, like, to be one of those guys that were all tatted up. But being an actor, it could be a real problem. And, and so... I, I kind of never did. So once I had the opportunity, I just thought, well, I'm going to throw something on. 
And I was just, you know, doing it on the fly. I, but I, I, I always remember wishing I'd had a little more time to, to think about that. Well, there is something on your breastplate that perhaps should have had a little more time. Do you want, you want to tell that story? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so on my, on my uh, breastplate, you got to keep in mind, these, 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 uh, um, these, this is real armor. It's metal, right? So when I'm, when I'm uh, trying to put my personalized message on it, I was uh, dating this girl named Heather at the time. And so I, <laughs> I, I scratched this heart in, and it's a beautiful heart. I was so pleased with myself that I actually, I was actually make it, made it look like pretty equal on both sides. And then I start scratching in Heather, and I get halfway through, and I realize, you do not have enough room to write Heather on this. <laughs> but I used to call her Head. So I, so I wrote Head. But I get so many uh, emails and messages from guys going, so who's he? <laughs> so how long did it take you to get used to the weight of these, the guns and everything that you had to wear? Like when you, when you were introduced to this stuff that you had to put on, did you think, oh, okay, not too bad. But then, of course, there was the actual weight of it. What was that process like for you? Well, it's fascinating. The uh, steady cameras and steady cam cameras and the harnesses were a new invention, and leave it to Jimmy Cameron to decide to attach a gun to it an M one eighty anti aircraft machine gun, and uh, so the, the, it was a real weapon, um, easily weighed like sixty seventy pounds, but the cantilever arm of the steady cam certainly made it a lot lighter. It actually floated like a Steadicam would. Um, but the day that we came to test it in front of Cameron and the armorer and everybody else, Cameron said, okay, put the guns out. And as soon as we put the guns forward, everything popped right off our chest and the guns hit the floor. And everyone stood there in silence for a minute until Cameron interrupted the moment and said, duct tape, get duct tape. And so every morning, Jeanette Goldstein and I were duct tape into the harness so it would never pop off again and uh also because jim was under the gun for time and money uh he never wanted us to de-rig so once we had the gun while paxton and paul riser were running around telling jokes and having a good time there were jeanette and i just stuck with the weapons all day <laughs> exactly and uh and the actual weight of them was such that, yeah, sometimes I'd go home at night and I'd wake up thinking I still had the thing on because it was weighting down on my shoulders. Um, it was worse for Jeanette because I think part of her uh, uh, armor actually was like sitting on her pelvic bone. So uh, there were days when Jeanette was not quite as friendly as she, <laughs> she could have been. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, it, I mean, it, it's a real weapon. And also leave it to Cameron. The most fascinating thing is who would have thought to drill holes through the tip of the gun so that when it fired it didn't just have one single flame it actually refracted and when you watch the film again it, it, it's such a beautiful uh, uh image um and exciting you know it's a much more than just like one shot of light so um yeah you know jim is a lover of all gadgets he loves that, that, that that's his realm he, so uh yeah it's all his creation yeah i remember um I, I got called to the film really early, uh, really early in the, in the, in the uh, casting process. And um, I, he had us read for, um, for um, Hicks and Hudson. 
because they had the most dialogue, so you can get an idea of how, how we were as actors. And after I read for it, I, I didn't want any other role but Hicks or a Hudson. And, and so I, I, I made that clear to him. And he says, well, this is early days. And you got to keep in mind, James Cameron was, was the, the James Cameron that we know now. And I also had a, um, a kind of a film in, the, in my back pocket of Full Metal Jacket because uh, Stanley Kubrick had, had called me in and, and was considering me to play uh, one of the roles in Full Metal Jacket. So I probably was a little more cocky than I would have been normally. But in any event, I, I remember going in there and um, telling them these are the only roles that I'm really interested in. And uh, he said, well, it's early days and I haven't really seen anybody else for these roles. But he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, um, I'll rewrite the script. This was later on, on I think on the second, second meeting. He says, I'll rewrite this. I wrote the script. I can rewrite the script. I'll put a couple of characters together. You can choose which, which name you want that character to be. And uh, I'll rewrite it and then you can play that character. I can offer you that now. So uh, I, chose, I chose the character Private Frost. And... Uh, he thought it was a cool character because he thought it because he was going to have a have me, have me die in flames. So he thought that was a kind of cool little thing. But I remember getting on set and Mark and I and Jeanette, we used to we we're kind of a little competitive with each other. We used to work out and and, and, and do pull ups and, and push ups and try and get, you know, look fit for the film. And but Mark had no sleeves on so he could show his little biceps, little bitty biceps that he had. And <laughs> And I remember when he gave him the big gun, I was like, damn, I chose the wrong character. And then I remember like halfway through the film and Mark, Mark and Jeanette would be sitting with their guns on this thing, holding the guns up and they had to just stay there and I could run around and do what everybody else was doing. I was thinking, no, I think I, I picked the right character. Pat McClung um, worked on the Sulaco. You did all the detailing on the, on the side of the spaceship, correct? I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that process, but also both you and Mark about the first time you met James Cameron, since I think you have a, a pretty interesting backstory with him. Oh, um, I worked on Battle Beyond the Stars in for Roger Corman in 1980, and uh, with uh, Robert Skotak, who supervised the visual, and his brother Dennis, who's a DP for the visual effects. And I know Robert from 1978, so we we went way back, and there was this. Uh, tall guy running around when I first started that just got in everybody's stuff and would make a mess and like who is this it was Jim and he had just come he was living in Orange County he and Alec Gillis who's a, a has a makeup company called ADI and they would drive into Venice every day so Jim showed us this film that he had done he had got some money from some dentists or lawyers or, or I'm not sure why it's called Xenogenesis and it was 35 millimeter uh, two robots battling it out in this giant sort of spaceship set and just like thought like how did this guy do this how did he know he has I think it's a what is it an eidetic memory so he could read the books on how to load cameras and he just he was phenomenal and he would have piles of drawings he'd show me of planets and spaceships and I thought and one day Bob Skotak said we're probably going to be working for this guy one day and Sure enough, we were. So that's how I got into it. But what's interesting is, I'll say this real quick, is my perspective from the film. I was, we were stuck in sound stages doing miniature stuff, and I would sneak over and watch you guys do the, seem like the fun stuff. And then we'd have to go back and, uh, and deal with our tea breaks, if you guys want to talk about that. But uh, it's an well, English thing. But uh, anyway, that was my 
Well, he's, he's being very modest, but, you know, really to, to acknowledge the fact that in Aliens, like all the work that you did is so impeccable and long before the days of CGI. I mean, that's, that's the brilliance of the film is it's old-fashioned camera movement and lighting effects and brilliant miniature effects and visual effects. Uh, and, and, and it stands the test of time. I mean, the movie's really, it's flawless. Well, I'll say this about Jim. He knows how to pick people. He's very good about this kind of stuff, and the characters are very well defined. As as a writer, he you know he he knows his stuff. And our movie was of the three films that were going on at the time at Pinewood. It was a Little Shop of Horrors and a thing called Gun Bus. We were the low budget film. But we were really, and if you look at that film, is because of Jim. It looks like it's it's huge, and it was we were just like tape and rubber bands, and you know like. Sure, and duct tape. duct tape <laughs> and mirrors. Yeah, but wasn't our, our budget was only like eighteen million, 18 right? Mil. Got to think about it in, in today's terms. You know, it's pretty phenomenal. Eighteen mil. I had a when I when I first met Jim, I um, I met him and I came in, and I read for him, and then he he says I I, I um, he's I'm really interested in you. It's early, but he says before you. Before you accept anything else, would you at least come back and and and, and talk to me? Um, and the film sounded fun, and I read the script, and I, I really liked the script. But you know, I had a I'd had um, <clears throat> incidents where I've read scripts and got really excited about them, and then you make the movie, and the movie kind of goes. Boom. And so uh, I've had other movies where where I've read the script and and thought nothing of it, and then the script did great. So I I kind of was like, I wouldn't allow myself to get too excited. But I, I read the script and thought, yeah, this is, this is a great, this is new, everything about it is new, and I love the, the concept of it. And then I got, um, had, had met him with Stanley Kubrick, and he told me that he wanted to cast me for eight weeks in, in Full Metal Jacket. And Stanley Kubrick was a big name then, whereas came, James Cameron was not such a big name then. And uh, so, true to my word, I, I came back to James, and I said, James, um, I got offered eight weeks with Stanley Kubrick, and you know I, I like your film, but I, you know, I really want to work with Stanley Kubrick. You know, I'm trying to start off as a young actor, and I, I, I'd love to work with him. And one of the things that Stanley Kubrick used to do was he would give actors an opportunity to really play on set, and and that's the fun part for an artist is that you get a chance to really try things. Like on on television, they cast you, and you are that person. You know, with film, you get an opportunity to actually try and create a character and I was looking forward to that and James says Rico I will let you come here a week late if Kubrick will release you after eight weeks and so I got in contact with Kubrick and asked him if they would release me after eight weeks he said no I said well will you at least pay me my fee because everybody on Kubrick's film was getting paid scale he said no I said can I at least read the script he said no so I said no, and um, and I went. I came back to James and I said, "Yeah, I, I I'd like to to do your film," and um, and the rest is history. And I, and I was always, you know, it would have been such an amazing thing uh, to, to to work on a, on a Kubrick film. Uh, and and I always regret that I couldn't do both of them. But uh, I I think in the end that I, I probably made the right choice. Well, I'll just say this. Uh... One thing about Full Metal Jacket, it's an amazing film and everything, but Aliens is a classic. It, it really is. Uh, of all the movies I've worked on just doing miniature work, 
and Aliens, I worked on Blade Runner, you know, doing model stuff. But those two movies, to this day, I don't know, that's what, that's, I think you made the right decision. Patty, <laughs> you, you answer this question. Did you have interactions with Sid Meeks? Uh, I met him. I worked on 2010. Not a great movie. Yeah. But uh, the spaceship. The do you only on. do classics? Is that is that, is that your your I deal? I do a lot of crappy, like everybody. <laughs> we all have. No, but I met him over the years, and oddly enough, he said that the Sulaco was the closest to you know to being the realization of his drawings because he had done Tron and I don't know what else, and things get sort of changed. But we, Jim wanted uh, Sid Meat's design, and so did I. You know, it was. It was it was a, a number of people worked on the, the Sulaco. You're asking about that, you know. Uh, I did a, a large portion of it, but it was, um, it was a classic design. What can I say? You know. One thing I'll say real quick about Jim is that he, he designed the power loader. He drew it. He designed the smart guns. He designed the costumes, the lights, the uh, the, the rocks on the surface of the planet, the sky. If I needed something, I could go ask Jim. I said, hey, you know, what about this? He goes, yeah, draws it out. <laughs> and the most, as I started supervising visual effects, I found out that was not the case with most directors I've worked with. They go, I don't know, you know, so, uh, but Jim, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. He just very much knows what he wants and he, he plows through it. And well, one thing I'd like to add to, to speak to that is the day I went to Pinewood when they offered me Drake, I walk into their Pinewood office and on the walls in absolute sequence was Jim's storyboard. And he's a fine artist, but the storyboard was plastered in sequence on all four walls. And it, 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 it seared in my brain. I, I just, and I asked Jim a couple years ago, I said, do you still have that storyboard? And he casually just said, ah, you know, it's in a box somewhere. And I said, Jim, you really have to unearth that thing and make a coffee table book and, I, and I'd be willing to bet that every single image in his storyboard is what you see in the movie. I'm, 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 oh, yes, right? absolutely, yeah. We did uh, what they call previs back then, and it was painful. It was Bob and Dennis Skotak and myself, and I made, I made a foam core Sulaco, you know, just so we could, back when it was a mini camera, it was, you know, VHS, you know, and we did all the shots, and we would do them over and over. And Jim would say, "Like tilt that up half a degree," you know, stuff like like you're holding something out. And so those that, those previs were the blueprint for the visual effect shots. So we knew exactly later on what we needed to do. So he's he's that way. He he that that script you read is the movie, and movies today are rewritten and people redo them in post and blah blah blah. But you know. I don't know about Avatar 2, but the, all the movies he's done that I've worked on with Jim, it's it's just, it's laid out as a blueprint and you go. Even even with Avatar, I wouldn't bet against Jim. I just got a feeling, I mean, you would know, be a brave person to bet against him. But this, one of the good things I, I like, one of the things I liked about Jim most is that he knew what he wanted, but he, he was also able to give you an opportunity as an artist to put your stamp on it. Um, the example may be like uh, when he when he told us, "Listen, these are your your uniforms. Personalize them." Um, when we would be on set, um, the first line that I have in the movie, I come out of hypersleep, and we've been been lying in this damn thing, cocoon, whatever you want to call this glass thing, pod. 
we've been lying in that for hours while they try and get all the mirrors right because you know half of them were mirrors and half of them were, were actual practical and by the time we got out i just flew at what i was feeling and i just said i hate this job and and i remember uh jim coming to me afterwards and saying next take say that again and it's in the movie but it really just came from just being inspired and, and being and also having the license to actually play a little bit uh the scene uh, around the breakfast table when we're doing when, when Lance is doing uh, the android is doing the hand thing with Bill Paxton, um, we're talking about Poontang, uh, Arturian Poontang specifically. If any of you guys know about that, and uh, <laughs> and Mark throws some line in. Mark goes, "Yeah, but yours was a man," and 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 I go, "Yeah, it don't matter when it when it's Arturian, Arturian though, baby," and and that's in the movie, you know. So it, it it's he did. He, he had a way of knowing what he wanted, also giving the artist an opportunity to, to contribute to that. And if it didn't work, you know, he would tell you that too. He's, he'd just say like, you know, no, next, next take, don't, don't use that. Uh, or, or he'll say, stick with the script. But if it worked, it was it, it was in, and he, 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 he wouldn't say anything. He'd let you just keep on playing with it. So I appreciated that too. So what's it like for you guys to be back close to these props that you are so famous I love being close to the props. I'm not so crazy about being close to this guy here, but uh, <laughs> but the props, the outfit was is amazing. I mean, it kind of like it took me back instantly looking at that at that outfit. You know, the helmet, the the, the, the scratches in the in the armor, uh, the whole thing, the the little eye thing that comes down. And I was I was blown away about that. You guys got to keep in mind we're talking. 30, I'm not going to age myself, but it must, how, how old is it, 35 years now, man, something like that? So this whole, this whole concept of a screen being the size of, you know, being a, a, a one inch by two inch screen, that was like so futuristic. And when he popped that baby down, we popped that baby down and it lit up, forget about it. I was, I was fascinated, I'm sorry, just technically by the, the smart gun. It was such a cool item, and I remember Jeanette would complain about because it was like the her weight because she's was little, and I think I think they didn't have like a small size. It's a steady cam arm that we were talking about that holds a camera. And I think they had like one size that didn't fit all, so hers was you know, yeah. So, there's, not, so the size of the harness that's what I was alluding to. It would like sit on her pubic bone, and it was it was, it was she was miserable most of the time. Um, and not only that, but the fact that we were stuck with with the guns because Jim didn't want to take the time to derig everything because it, you know they, they, he was under the gun to you know any overages uh, to the budget Jim and Gail Ann Heard were on the hook for. So um, you know people there are rumors of Jim being a megalomaniac. Well, he isn't. He's just a very exacting, detailed genius. And I think during our shoot, he was very conscious of the fact that. He loses a day; it's coming out of his pocket. So no, and there, there was there was real fear of, of Hollywood execs coming and 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 coming from Hollywood and actually trying to take well, the they film. Came. Yeah, I remember they came. So that was that was a real fear. It wasn't just a you know hypothetical. Uh, so yeah, he had a, he had a lot of pressure on him, and I I re you knew it was pressure because sometimes I remember we're, we're coming out of the AP and and we're, it's raining and for film you know you really have to have a lot of rain for it to show on film. So it's fucking pouring down rain and it, wind's blowing the wind machines are going 
and everybody has to rush out and you have to find your order and, and just fit in where you can get in. And I asked Jim in between takes, I said, listen, uh, he says, Rico, I want you to lead it. Come out, come out and, and you lead it. I said, okay, great, but which way do I turn? He goes, yeah, and then walks away. <laughs> so I know he was multitasking in his head and he thought he gave me an answer, but he gave me nothing, but yeah. So Mark, the smart gun that's in there, there were two made, am I correct on that? Yeah. And you each piece personalized yours. Yours said, my bitch, and Jeanette said, adios. So the one that's in there has both written one over the other. Do you have any, any understanding of why that would have happened? I don't know because, I mean, I, I know I painted my in, insignia there uh, and I, I didn't scratch anything into my gun. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe they'd used it as a, as a double at some point. Yeah, you know, when we were sort of finishing up on the H stage or G stage, the miniature stuff, Jim was in there doing pickups. Because Gail, you know, the producer was, she, she did a thing where she sticks her foot on, was it? I can't remember. She was all dressed up as Vesquez. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah so it may, the gun may have been, you know, repurposed for a close-up. Because there, there are all kinds of little, little pops, like you see the power loader foot come down. All that stuff was shot. You know, when we were trying to do the queen laying all the eggs, the miniature queen, anyway. So that might be right. I mean, just think about that. You've got the director and his wife, who's the producer, putting her foot in for one of the actors for a shot. <laughs> so do you guys have a favorite prop, a favorite whatever, something that you wore, whether it was a helmet or a gun or something? Well, I, I was fortunate. I mean, at the end of the shoot, I, I got... And this will disappoint everybody. <laughs> it disappoints me a lot. I got the bus that they used to make my death mask. I got my gloves. I got my chicken bone necklace and my hat and my flak jacket. And uh, when I came to LA for the premiere of Aliens, I never returned to England. And uh, sadly, I lost my marriage over that, but my first wife also threw away <laughs> all my stuff. And it was it, it was odd occurrence because about 15 years ago I was contacted by somebody who said they'd give me like 150 thousand dollars for all those items, and I thought, oh well, you know, I haven't spoken to my ex in a while, but I'll give her a call, and uh, she was very terse. <laughs> she very directly said, "No, threw those away." I thought, oh God, that's painful. I had a I had a favorite piece. Um, I. I had done a movie called Caruso, based on Robinson Caruso. And in the movie, I play this, um, this African warrior who gets, who gets sacrificed. So they cut my head off uh, as, as, a as a sacrifice. And I remember when they cut my head off, they had, had a busk of my head and it had like veins and arteries coming through so the blood would show. And they offered it to me and I remember thinking, that is the last thing on earth that I would want to see every day. And I turned it down. And from that mo moment on, whenever someone would offer me something for a film, I, I never wanted anything because um, I, I didn't want, I didn't know what I'd do with it. What are you going to do with a picture of your, your dead face, right? And I remember when we left Aliens, there was, there was a lot of cool stuff that I could have taken. But I, I was, um, I was kind of, um, I was working on two movies at the same time. I was working on Aliens and I was working on, on Mission Impossible 2. 
Aliens was sh shot in London. Mission Impossible 2 was shot in Prague. So I was on a flight going back and forth. And so I was a little, uh, you know, like discombobulated about, about, about stuff like that. I was just really just focusing on the film. But the one thing I did take from that film that was a prop was uh, the dog chain, which had my character's name on it. And it was, it was cool to me because I come from a, a military family, um, but I didn't go to the military. But I finally had a dog tag. And the difference between my dog tag and their dog tag was theirs was made of metal, and mine was, had, was this see-through kind of glass stuff, which I thought was really cool. So I took it, had my name on it, boom, that's what I want. And then uh, years later, a fan wrote to me and said that me and my friends are going to go to school dressed as uh, alien characters, and I'm going dressed as you. Could you send me um, uh, a signed photograph? And I sent her a signed photograph, and I surprised her, and I dropped the, the dog tag in with it, because I thought she's going to blow their mind away now. <laughs> and, and so I, I gave her that. And, um, and I, this is when, 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 you know, these things weren't really that thought of as, as being collectibles. You know, to me, I just thought it was a cool thing, especially because it was see-through. It was very different. But I, I wasn't really attached to it that much, obviously. I just thought it would make her day. But now I think, I'm hoping that she realized that was the one and only that wasn't a copy. You have her address. <laughs> <laughs> this guy here, he's, he's not just our commentator. He is, he is a geek about this stuff. He came to me and, and, and pointed out something that I had, had, didn't even know. On my, on my, um, on my uniform, because when, when Jake, like I said, when James told us to, to personalize it, it was like, do it now, like right now. He led us there and, and we had to do it now. And so I'm just thinking of what's some badass stuff that you would do if you were a, if you were a military guy, especially if you were a Marine. And so I wrote, and I'm, I'm pretty much a pacifist, but I wrote on my, on my, um, on my uh, thing, uh, when in doubt, nuke them. Because I thought that was badass, you know? And also I'm thinking, you know, you're dealing with, this is a futuristic movie. We're dealing with things where nuke probably isn't the most powerful thing, and you're dealing with aliens who probably normal conventional weapons wouldn't affect them. So I'm thinking that was a cool thing to write. And then he just showed me a tattoo that I put on myself as well. And the tat, and, and I've always wanted to be one of these guys that were all tatted up. I just kind of like, I wanted to do it. And maybe the reason why I wanted to do it is because as an actor, it's kind of hard to do because it limits you to certain roles. And, and especially if you're a person of color, trying to cover those things up and match the colors of my skin. Because, you, you, you know, it's not just brown. You got to, my skin has a little bit of red, so it has to be brownish red. And so it's a real problem. But I always had this, this kind, of, kind of idea of, of being tatted up. And so when I had the opportunity to put a tat on there, I put, a, I put like the most badass thing I could think of. And it was that Nukem. And it was the other one was um, this, this guy with a, with a blade in his mouth. And it looked like a pirate. It looked like he's up to no good as well. But he, this guy here points this stuff out to me. And... I had completely forgotten about it until you showed it to me. You're a bit of a captive audience, so I have to catch you when I can. Um, Pat, I have one quick question. When the, when the Sulaco is coming into view, the light catches the side of the ship, and there's the, the impression of individual panels on the model. The, the, you must have done something. You, you differentiated different parts of it in such a, an amazing oh. way. Well, you know, originally this is going back to the low budgetness of the whole thing. Jim wanted that model like 15 or 20 feet long. I said, and I said, no, I can do it. And I always do this. 
which is six feet. That's because that's where my arms. And because Jim knew I was really good at detailing stuff, he said, okay, because he wanted to, you know. And so that was, uh, I think I just used like uh, scotch tape and I don't know, whatever we had. They called it sellotape because it's England. But, um, uh, and so to say another cost saving thing, the model was only built on one side because it was we only going to be shooting the right side. So, uh, you know, to save money, another, you know. That's how that's how bad it, visual effects was brutal, money wise. Because the Skotak brothers had done all the in camera stuff. Things are you guys came by and yeah. saw those whole sets. It was because we were using rain, and that's why the the effects still hold up because it's real. It's the models are on wires. It's raining. It's smoke. It's the same stuff you guys went through, but uh, you know, probably not as bad. We weren't we weren't getting wet. <laughs> No, it was interesting because I've had fans ask me, what was it like working on set? And in the movie, you just see the one side. But when you're an actor and you come, you come on set, you see the other side. And it's so fake and phony on the other side. <laughs> when you get to the other side, it's great. Well, also the fact that you were led to believe that the planet was humid and hot and steamy. Well, we were in England in the winter. And before each take, you know, the makeup ladies would come through and spray us with cold water it was it was quite a shock well the, the atmosphere processing station was at a place it was acton power station and it's supposed to be hot you know it's the pipes are glowing and it was freaking freezing and it was like 30 degrees or something uh and luckily i didn't have to go there very often because we were you know but you guys i'm sure were freezing your butts off out there and i remember that the, the water they would use this also glucose or something like that is it called glycerin glycerin, glycerin. so they put this glycerin on your forehead and then when, when it leaks down into your eyes it stings like hell but the, you know and then you're rubbing your eyes but this was all part of it and and at the same time you've got you're carrying on you know armor under a suit you're carrying your weapons you got you got atmospheric smoke i mean it, it is it, it's it's an experience <laughs> Part of the auction is um, a stunt version of the flamethrower, and you both carried a flamethrower at one point. But did either of you use the, the actually functioning flamethrower? Ah, can you speak to that? Yeah, that was uh, my introduction to action filmmaking. It was my first, it was one of the first scenes shot was my death. Um, and an amazing day because uh, started at like 4.30 in the morning, they applied the death mask on one side of my face but there were tubes running up my legs, up through under my shirt and underneath the appliance. And they were gonna pump these chemicals, one bubbled, one fizzed and one smoked. And they were all activated by water. So imagine I'm all hooked up with these tubes and have the appliance on, turned away from camera. Um, the problem with the chemicals was, was that they were toxic. So, when we're when we're getting ready to shoot and plus I have a real live lit flamethrower that shoots 25 yards and uh, Jim tells me like he and the cameraman are like 25 or so yards away and they have this huge plexiglass sheet in front of the camera and Jim says now look I want you to fire directly at us and I was like okay we're all gunned up and then I get the directive now before we apply the water take your breath and hold it 
while they spray the chemicals, get the stuff going, everything is going ready, ready, action, boom. I have to turn into, turn into camera, blazing with the uh, uh, flamethrower. And for some reason, the first take, I, I, I got freaked out. I didn't want to shoot it directly at somebody. So I kind of aimed it a little bit above camera and then still holding my breath, fall in between some lit flame uh, bars that are on the ground when, and wait until they shouted cut and then two huge stunt guys lifted me and I was 235 pounds at the time lifted me in front of a helicopter fan to blow away all the toxic fumes and then I could breathe right so there's like my introduction to film action filmmaking and then of course Jim came rushing over and he said Mark no directly at us but shoot the gun right out of the flamethrower right at us and if you look at the film again it's the perfect cutaway because the the flamethrower goes directly at camera it's a cutaway to uh vasquez going drake you know so um jim knew what he was doing but my god i mean i i've never held one since but it, it was an experience i only got to uh to, to use it one time and that was on my death scene as well um and I remember, uh, you know, actors are nothing but big kids, and I, I wanted to play with this thing so badly, man, but you can't because it would, you know, burn the whole set down. But that was, that was it. That's the only time I got to use it. Most of the time, my character only carried a, a gun or, or the, um, the room machine that's supposed to be detecting whether the aliens are around. But the one time I got to use it was when um, I used it, and, and, and it, it became the death of me, literally. When... Uh... I'll just say this real quick. What, what our effects guy, John Richardson, I used to have to go over, he was by the big tank, you know, with the big backing in the back. And I knew all the effects guys because we were all working together. And, and they had the flamethrower. The guy said, I'm going to go test it. I said, well, you want to come and see it? And I go, oh, okay. And I thought, it's only going to go. And he lights the sucker off and it goes like, yeah. like 30 or 40. I thought, oh my God, they're going to give this to an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. It was cool, though. I mean, it oh, really? oh, yeah. in terms of the legacy of Aliens, what is it to you guys? Do you think why it still inspires people today? It's a movie that is, of course, a masterpiece, but it remains in the hearts and the minds of fans today, like it was just released yesterday. Why is that? Why do you think? Yeah, I personally think it's because the, you know Jim made all the characters and their relationships, as you alluded to, Pat, is uh, human and accessible. And uh, so I can't tell you the numerous times we've been approached, and uh, you know, servicemen, you know, will say, "You're the reason I signed up for the Marines." And you know, I quickly say, "No, can't be responsible for that." But uh, thank, thanks for your service. Um, but it, it does, it inspired a, a whole slew of people. And what's fascinating now is um, generations of people loving the film. I mean, you know, we, we go to events sometimes and you'll have, you know, you know, grandpa, dad, and, you know, their kids and their kids' kids. And they've all, they're all in love with the, the film. And I think, I mean, there's, there's, I don't know if this is accurate, but I mean, there's something kind of, like nationalistic or, or, or gung-ho about aliens, right? I mean, we are space marines, after all. Um, I don't know. You have a thought? 
it, it's, it's very interesting about this film. Uh, I find it very interesting. I, I was flipping through uh, the film probably about four or five years ago. I was flipping through television channels and I, I stumbled upon the, the movie and it was being played. And it's about halfway through it and I thought, let me watch this just to see how it holds up. And I was shocked how well it holds up because I imagine it being like a lot of the movies that I made during that time where you look at it and within an instant you know the, the decade this movie was made in. And it was really relevant uh, today. But I also think uh, we should probably give Jim some credit for his foresight, not just in the story, but also in the casting of the, of the film. If you look at that film, first of all, Sigourney is, was amazing in it. And the, the film was the first film with a, a female action uh, lead. So that was groundbreaking. But if you look at all the women in there, Vasquez, she was a beast. I mean, you never seen, had never seen a woman like that on screen before. Uh, even the little girl that was in the movie, everybody else on the planet had died. She was the one survivor. So the women were, were, were just killers on that film. And then there was a diversity before diversity was a thing. You know? And he didn't pair me with the brown person. He paired me with Michael Bean, and he paired, Mike, and he paired, paired Jeanette with, with Mark, who you don't get any whiter than Mark. So, <laughs> so I think he was ahead of the game in a lot of ways, and, and that being that ahead, when you look at the film now, it still resonates. I was actually in the army before I got into the film business, and I was in the in about '75, and I was in uh, well, the few times the U.S. was not at war with somebody, <laughs> so '75 to about '77. And what Jim did is he he nailed the group of guys that sort of the camaraderie and the closeness when it's mainly men, you know, military is mainly men, and he nailed that. I mean, he wasn't Jim wasn't he's a Canadian. You know, he wasn't in the army, and I, more than some of the other, you know, moody military guy movies that were out at the time. But one thing too is that everybody redeems themselves. You know, at the very end, uh, you know, um, Bill Hope's character and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, what's Bill uh, no, Paxman? You know, at the very end, he's just shooting up everything, and then the bad guy gets it, of course, but. He wrapped up all the characters, I thought, so smartly, you know, the whole character you know, arcs of what was left of them, but I don't know, you guys were doing it, so, uh, and, and casting, he was so good at casting. I would, yeah, when I read the script originally, knowing him, I thought, oh my God, this is gonna be, you know, amazing. When we got to England, the British certainly didn't think so. The crew, they were, they were not happy it was a lot of Americans doing this. Um, but they came around, I gotta say, as they were starting to see it, they were they started to see that this was gonna be something special, so. I think another reason the uh, crew, there was there was some issues with the, uh, with the English crew and the American, um, uh, our American director and producer. Um, in England, they have these tea breaks and it's mandatory. And so you could be in the middle of a shoot and you could finally be at the point where everything is just nicely well oiled and you're ready to go and it's tea time and you got to stop everything and everybody has tea. And for a producer, you know, that drives you mad. And for actors as well, you know, because you, you finally feel like you're ready to go. You know, you're like, you're like a horse ready to go and, 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 and someone pulls, pulls the plug on you. So 
I think that that well, there was an incident where some of the people were were fired because they were complaining. Uh, some of the crew were, were complaining about hours and hours of uh, of overtime, and this was necessary to bring the film in on time. And and people were complaining and demanding more money. And I think that, that some people got fired, and, and, and the crew was unhappy. And Sigourney heard about this, and Sigourney met with James Cameron and and the producer and kind of ironed things out and asked if you know maybe we should hire some of these people back and 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 pay them and when that crew came back they worked their butts off but i think not only because it was their job but also i think because she stood up for them and i think they appreciated that and i think it shows in the film uh partly because of uh, of that little incident where it we became one unit then before it was the Americans and the English, and, the, and after that, it, it became one unit. Uh, I also think that, that James had the foresight to put us through a kind of a two-week um, uh, boot camp so that by the time we started filming, we knew each other. I knew that there were certain things I could say to Mark to get him going, and that he, he knew that he could say shit back to me to get me going. And, and, and so that shows up in the film. And, and it also gave us an opportunity to, to uh, ad-lib a bit because we knew what we could get away with. And I, I think that made it feel more like these guys actually were uh, uh, that, that, that kind of thing that you see in, 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 real, uh, in real life where they've been in, in, in the dugout for, for weeks at a time and they know each other like they know their, their brother. And, and we, we did have a, a group of um, a special forces, uh, British special forces guys who trained us uh, in this little mini boot camp, but it, it wasn't fun and games. In fact, uh, you know, you know, God bless Bill Paxton. Uh, you know, we all miss him for sure. But uh, the first day of boot camp, I don't know if you remember, it was like a 4:30 a.m. call, and uh, the first thing we did was run five miles. And it wasn't like jogging. I mean, these guys were like move, 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 and you be. And Paxton was like, okay, okay, you know. And then, and then halfway through, Bill was like, uh. Just let me catch my let me catch my breath. <laughs> and, but I had been working out like three months prior. Like I was I was one of the first guys out at, at Pinewood just because I one of the mandates I got from Cameron was was I had to put on like 35, 40 pounds of muscle. So they had me three or four months prior. Just the guy who John Lee's remember he was he was the he was a stunt man. Uh, he was actually a farmer from like uh, Lincolnshire, but he had biceps the size of my thighs and he was the engine that moved the power loader it's a kind of like kabuki theater you know he was dressed all in black but all those power loader scenes was john lee's for real physically moving himself and sigourney it's extraordinary but um uh, lost my train of thought here but but, but just basically basic to say is like you know i went from 185 pounds to 235 in like four months because they were working me out like seven eight hours a day plus i got to go to the pinewood studio cafeteria and just oh yeah i'll have a steak and yeah give me half a dozen eggs and just loading up so it was it was great i i also think um uh, again james knew his characters he knew how he wanted them to come out in the film and i remember um there was an incident that happened where um Someone else was playing um, Michael Bing's character, another actor, and something happened off offset, and he uh, was kicked off the film. 
And so Mike Bean was called and he, he, he had a telephone call and said, you got 24 hours, this is a film, this is the money, take it or leave it, because we need to replace this character right away. And Mike was on a plane. And I had been working with this other, this other actor for two weeks, and one of the things as an actor, you know, this is your, your best buddy in the film, I try and find things so that we really do get to know each other. And so I'd kind of gotten, gotten used to this guy, and then all of a sudden, He's off the film and another guy's there and it was a really weird experience, you know? And I remember thinking that, um, I don't know if this is gonna work because he was so different from, from James Remar who was the other actor. And his, his way of delivering it was delivering his lines and all the stuff that we had, we had shot, we had to reshoot. And I just didn't think it was gonna work. But James knew it was gonna work. You know, he had that foresight to know that, okay, it's different. But that doesn't mean that it's not as good. And, and he was right. I remember there was another scene when Bill Paxson, when we do the drop, Bill Paxson has this big monologue. And if you read it on script, it's a badass monologue. It's whoever's saying those words, you think that they are gonna go there and they're just gonna just like be the, the S-H-I-T. And when, when Bill was doing it, I remember thinking, I don't believe he's that bad. But James didn't want it. James wanted it to be just like it turned out. He wanted him to talk all that smack. But when it comes down to it, he's really a bit of a coward, you know? He, he really don't, don't really want to do that. Why don't you do that, you know? But in the end, as you said, he redeems himself. So I think James knew what he wanted. And, and as an actor, you go in there, you, do, you, you focus on your part, and you do your thing, and, and then let, let the, the, the puppet master, you know, put it all together. Well, I think uh, we're going to wrap this, um, but we do have a giveaway contest. Well, that was freaking amazing. Thank you to Rico. Thank you to Mark. Thank you to Pat. Thank you to our friend Chuck at Prop Store. Thank you to everybody involved in this for hosting Perfect Organism. Uh, you guys sounded right at home, and I sincerely hope that this is the first of many of these such events and that you know, all three of us can be together to do it next time because it sounded absolutely incredible. And uh, I just want to do a quick note for people that this was uh, in great part supported directly by patrons. And that's how we were able to get around or how you guys were able to get around that weekend. It's how you were able to afford, you know, food while you're on the road and all this traveling back and forth. And, and that was money that was, you know, would not have been there had our patrons not so graciously been stepping up over the last years and months. We have a number of new patrons that we're going to give more of a you know full shout out to the next time we record. Um, this is a special episode. Our regular episodes are still on schedule. We have an interview with the uh, narrator of Aliens Colony War uh, and also Aliens Into Charybdis that is coming out uh, a week from when this drops. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to join our Patreon and you want to help support stuff like this in the future, please go to perfectorganism.com support or search us on Patreon. Uh, for just $4 a month, you get access to this huge archive of things we're constantly adding to, including recent Sublime Noise score episodes on films uh, ranging from Interstellar to Annihilation to uh, frame rate episodes where we talk about films like Men, the new Alex Garland movie, and many, many, many other things like that. So uh, if you want in on any of that, please join us on Patreon, and we would welcome you with open arms. Thank you all.
To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.